Amen, friends. If you would, grab your Bibles. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a print Bible, the Bible is available on our church's app. You can download that. If you don't want to do that, it would be a great reminder to bring your Bible every week to church. What a great, great way to finish 2020, having your own print Bible out every Sunday to take notes and underline things and study God's Word. Uh, everything I say will pass away, but the Word of God will endure forever. Now, if you're joining us, we're going through 1 Peter right now in a series called Sojourners about how uh, you and I don't quite fit in this world. We are passing through this life as sojourners and resident aliens and exiles because we seek the city that is to come. We seek the kingdom of God. So how are we supposed to live in the meantime? That's what 1 Peter is all about. Today we're going to be looking at how 1 Peter teaches us that part of our strategy for this life is to embrace our identity in Christ. With that in mind, hear, friends, the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Let's pray together as we dive into God's holy and errant word. Holy Spirit, we know that you are here among us, and your word teaches us to ask for good things and to ask without being double-minded. And so, a Spirit, we ask that you would give us insight into your holy scriptures, that we would apply them to our lives. Lord, that we would hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us through your holy word. And Lord, we pray that we would truly know our identity is in Christ Jesus and in nothing else. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so as I was working through this passage, it's astonishing to me how much 1 Peter is referencing the Old Testament, right? So we're in the New Testament, uh, so we're studying the books after Jesus has entered our world, and it's amazing to me how often the New Testament actually references and alludes or just directly quotes from the Old Testament. And so as I was diving into this, it, it struck me that uh, we need to kind of elevate our thinking a little bit to understand what this passage is going on uh, and on about, because not only do we need to listen to the words in First Peter, we also have to have some basic understanding of the Old Testament story. Uh, God's Word is is not two separate books. It's actually one coherent revelation that has been given to us through many, many years and many of the prophets, right? And so to try to understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament is like, is like trying to understand what a tree is and denying the reality of what a root is. 
To understand a tree, you have to understand there are roots, and then there's the trunk, right? To understand God's Word, we've got to see that it is a coherent message. It is the revelation of God's plan for this world. That's what history is. It's His story of redemption, and that's what we find in Scripture. Uh, There's a cohesion that we sometimes sort of lose out on. But the more you read the New Testament, the more you realize, wait a second, he's just quoting the Old Testament a bunch. He's just saying all these Old Testament things. And if you notice that, if you're a Christian and you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, that should be very encouraging because that means that you and I can start to see the big picture, the mystery of the gospel revealed uh, at at the end of time, as, as Paul will say it in Ephesians. We're seeing the big picture. So that brings up a pastoral dilemma. So what I mean by that is as your pastor, I want God's word to be very clear to everybody. And I want it to be accessible. And I think we're supposed to teach and understand God's word in a way that makes sense. But there's also a reality that when we read the Bible, we kind of need to gird up the loins of our minds and use our brains and get excited to, to dive deep into God's word. And that's part of what we do in corporate worship, right? Is we're getting into God's word at a deeper level. And um, for some people, some Christians say, I don't want to have that. I don't want any of that. I just want it like really, really easy. But what I would ask is, is that how you treat any other area of your life? I don't think it's actually necessarily true. I mean, imagine if you were like, really into coffee. Is anyone really into coffee here? I don't want to be alone on this, okay? No one knew what I was talking about at the first service, but this is a thing. And if it's a thing, I need you to back me up after the service, okay? If you're really into coffee, right? If coffee's your thing, if it's part of your identity, I like coffee. And I'm not fun to be around when I don't have coffee. And I like good coffee, right? If that's the kind of person you are, you'll know, right, that there's a way to taste the great flavors of coffee. How do you do it? Does anyone know how you really taste the flavor of coffee? It's really, it's kind of pretentious. Does anyone know what you do? You get a little spoon with a little bit of coffee and you do what? Does anybody know? You go... It's really obnoxious to do a good bean. Have you ever done it? I've done it. And you go, oh, mm, mm, hazelnut, um, coconut, walnut, mm-hmm, slight blackberry with aged cheddar, right? Has anyone ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? If you go, if you, okay, if you're into coffee, this is part of it. You already signed up for the pretentiousness. Now you just get to do it out loud, right? You know, that whole thing. All right, so. Apparently, I'm the only one who's done that. So what about sommeliers? Maybe people drink wine more here than they drink coffee, right? If that's possible, right? You know, what do sommeliers do? You know, they go, you know, you know, you know and, they, and then they spit in the bucket and they tell you like 13 types of fruit that are extinct for the last 2,000 years that it tasted like, right? Okay, so if you, were, if you were really into wine and were really into coffee or whatever, you know, whatever your thing is, right? If you're really into it, And someone came along and said, well, how about I give you some Welch's grape juice? A kid can drink it. You think a sommelier would care to taste the color flavor palette of Welch's grape juice? Or what if you were really into coffee? And I was like, oh, great. I have some instant coffee. I used about half the coffee beans and I pumped it full of half and half and a bunch of sugar. Now, you may like that, but would somebody who's really into coffee want that kind of drink? No, they would say, I don't want to just drink sugar. I want like coffee flavor. That's what's beautiful. Friends, if you are a Christian, you have a holy taste. You've got this part of you that yearns to know God's word. You know, the Japanese, they have this idea that they have two stomachs. They don't mean it literally. What they mean is they mean it metaphorically. There's like the regular stomach 
And then there's this other second stomach. And what is that stomach for? Anyone know? Only for rice. And they say, I will eat this, but I'm always hungry for rice. Right? No matter what else I eat, there's always this part of me that's so grumbling for this rice. As a Christian, yeah, we've got our stomach and we have our taste, but there's always this part of us that wants more of God's word. And nothing else is going to make that tummy stop grumbling. There's a part of us that wants, another way to put it, is we want a high bar set, not a low bar. I mean, if you're really into running track and I said, oh, we should go run sometime. Well, scratch that. How about we, you know, walk from my house to the post office or my office to, I don't know, the church. Would you want to do it? You say, no, let's go run a marathon. You know, that's the kind of running I'm into. Well, if that's how you treat every other area of your life, if you're a Christian, don't you want to know more of God's word? Don't you feel that rumbling in your second stomach for more? So all that to say, um, this really doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, other than I need you to feel the grumbling in that second stomach of yours, because this passage is going to go deep into the Old Testament. And to understand it and the profound truth that it has, we've got to raise the bar a little bit. Because this has incredible impact on our day-to-day life because this passage is all about our identity, right? And to understand the importance of that question, we've got to just press pause for a second and recognize that the world you and I are living in today, like the number one question, if you were going to hang a banner over our society right now, it would be, it would say, identity? Question mark. What does it mean to be a person? Do I find my identity in my achievements? Is that what my Facebook posts are for? Is that what my profile is for? Is to show you my identity and my achievements? Or am I supposed to make my identity all of my wounds and all the things that have hurt me? Is that what I find my identity in? Is it in my sexual desires? Is that my identity? What makes me, me? What makes me a person? Every question in culture is either running to or away from answering that question. It's all about identity. What makes me, me? Who am I really? Friends, that's the cultural question everybody's asking. It's the question you are asking. Who am I? And friends, what you have to recognize is that only Jesus Christ can tell you the real answer to that question. Only he can tell you who you really are. Because at your core, you are made in God's image. And only God can tell you who you are. You can't let the world tell you who you are. You've got to let the creator of your soul and of your toenails and of your beard and of your fingernails, that God who created you can tell you who you were meant to be. And what Peter is telling his audience this group of Christians who are chosen, who are the elect. He says it right there in the very first sentence you are the elect exiles. He is telling God's people, you have to know who you are. If you're going to survive this life as a sojourner, if you're going to live in the tension between the two advents, right? Jesus came in the person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, born of Mary, And he is coming again one day to bring the kingdom of God to bear on this earth. To live between the two advents, the two comings of Jesus, we've got to know who we are. 
Because you have to recognize, friend, that there's always, always, always going to be a pull on you from the world to just sort of go along with the flow of this world. Don't be a weirdo. Don't be a jerk. Don't do anything that makes us upset. Just go along with the world. Just hang around with us. Don't stick your neck out. And don't be weird. And don't be a fundamentalist. Or don't be a crazy Jesus freak or whatever they're going to call us. And what Peter says is he says, your strategy to know how to live this Christian life as a sojourner, part of that strategy is to know who you are, to know what your identity is and not let anybody else try to override that. So what does it mean to know our identity? Well, Peter gives three things. Number one, he says, for a Christian to know who they are and for someone open to becoming a Christian to become who you are meant to be, You've got to, number one, see that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the living stone. So that's the first thing you've got to see, and we'll unpack what that means. Secondly, what you need to see is that you have to see that you and I, friend, we were meant to be priests. We're meant to be priests. And the last thing is you have to see that when it comes to our identity, you and I have to decide. We have to decide. Is Jesus telling us the truth or is he mistaken? Because he is the cornerstone of your life. He is the 90 degree angle cornerstone that you will build everything in your life about. Or as Peter says, he is a stone that will crush you one day. He is a stone that will offend you. In fact, that's exactly what Peter quotes. Look at verse 8. For those who do not believe, Jesus will be a stone of stumbling and a rock that offends them. So let's dive right in. What does it mean to see Jesus as the cornerstone, right? Well, look at verse four right there. It says, as you come to him, right? So Peter's talking to Christians. He's saying, well, as you come to Jesus, as you come to have faith in him, you have to recognize who he is. So Peter pauses and he says, well, who is the him right there? Well, he is Jesus, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So what does that phrase mean, living stone? That's kind of an odd phrase, right? Uh, what does it mean that Jesus is the living stone? Well, you have to remember that Peter uses the word living several times in this epistle. And he likes that word a lot because remember for Peter, the thing that changed his life primarily was seeing Jesus alive. You know, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the thing that changes Peter's life forever. Um, you know, this is incredibly important to remember. It was not, it is not Jesus's moral teachings alone that convinces Peter to be willing to die for him. It is not Jesus's moral teachings alone that makes Peter become an apostle. Because when Jesus is going to the cross, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. He, he runs away. And then what happens? Jesus comes back from the dead. He's back from the dead and he is alive. And he spends days with Peter. Acts tells us he spends 40 days instructing the apostles. He appeared multiple times. He ate meals with them. And what happens is forever in Peter's mind is Jesus is alive. Not just in my heart, but he's alive alive. And that changes everything. And so when we talk about Jesus being this cornerstone that I can build my life around, I do so because Jesus is alive. 
So yes, Peter, of course, adheres to all of Jesus's moral teachings. Uh, Jesus is the God in human form. Of course, he's right on his moral teachings. But the change in Peter's mind is the resurrection. Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Everything's now possible. You're going to kill me? Great. I know I'm going to be alive. How do you, what are you talking? How do you know that, Peter? Because I saw Jesus back from the dead. He has the keys to the kingdom. That's why. Jesus doesn't stay dead. How do I know all things are possible? Because Jesus is alive. Uh, how, Peter, how do you know that all the other ways, all the other philosophies of life are futile and can't lead to God? Because I've seen the transfigured Jesus. I've seen him die and I've seen him come back from the dead. And he's not lying to me. That's how I know. Peter's an apostle. He's seen the resurrected Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He says, I've seen the living savior, the living stone. So why does he use the word stone? You know, why did he say, as you come to Jesus, the living savior? Wouldn't that make more sense? Why does he say the living stone? Well, all right, you ready? We're about to go deep. You ready? This is what like the whole intro was for, right? We're going down deeper uh, level. This is not a time to disengage your mind. It's, your, it's a time to shift into fifth gear from fourth, right? All right, so what is Peter talking about when he talks about the stone? Why does he call Jesus the stone? Well, notice that for Peter, Peter is about to shoot off three quotes from the Old Testament. Bang, bang, bang. He quotes from Isaiah 28, right there in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion. Then he quotes from Psalm 118 that the stone that the builders rejected would eventually become the cornerstone. And then he quotes from Isaiah again in chapter 8, reminding us that this stone, even though it's the cornerstone, will offend people and not everybody's going to build their life on that cornerstone. So stone is sort of like the theme word for this whole passage. So what is it that Peter's getting at. Why is Jesus like a stone? Well, I love the image that Jesus is like the cornerstone, right? Because that was like, you know, you'd search high and low. You would hew a stone out of the rock maybe and make sure that it was like the perfect angle. And from that one stone, you would build your house or your structure, right? It's like the most important thing in the foundation, right? Well, that's a beautiful image. And Jesus will tell us to build our life on the rock, right? To build our life on him, but is that really what Peter's thinking of? Is he thinking about the thing that we build our lives on? Actually, when you study all of God's word, right? When you see a cohesion, a building up in the Old Testament to what happens in the New Testament, you'll see that this idea of stone is actually profoundly more rich. Let me give you an example. There was another believer of God who was elect, who was chosen by God and precious. His name was Danny or Daniel. He was chosen. He was beloved. He was a believer in God. His name is Daniel. You can read his life story in the Old Testament. He was also not just elect. He was what? He was in exile because in his life story, God's people were removed from the land of Israel and brought into the land of Babylon. And so Daniel spent his life as an elect exile he was part of the dispersion in the Old Testament. God's people were scattered through the nations. And in Daniel's life, uh, he had to fight constantly to retain his identity 
from the incredible social pressure of Babylon. Babylon was so impressive. It was so much better than anything he had ever seen. I mean, the infrastructure, the wealth, the opulence, the, the, the intellectual prowess of the Babylonian empire was unlike anything he'd ever seen before. I mean, Daniel had to defend uh, his identity down to what he ate. <laughs> Even what he ate became a matter of discussion. I mean, don't you feel like we are constantly having to defend our identity as Christians? Well, for, for Daniel, he had to fight it down to what he ate in the morning for food. Would he follow God's dietary laws or Babylon's? I mean, his identity was so much at stake. Did you know the Babylonians gave him a different name? I mean, the world tried so hard to take this believer and give him a different idea. And they said, you need to renounce your old life. Renounce who you are. You are no longer Daniel. We will name you Belteshazzar. That's what Daniel tells. They tried to give him a whole new identity. Whole new identity. And of course, all kinds of things happen to Daniel. And you know, they say, you know, don't pray to your God for 30 days. Take, you know, take 30 days off of that. And then, and then, you know, then you can go back to it. And Daniel won't do it. And Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. But... Early on in Daniel's life, in Daniel chapter 2, the reason I mentioned Daniel's story is because one of the big things that happened in Daniel's life is the king. The king comes to his astrologers and his magicians and all of his wise men, and he says, hey guys, I just had this really eerie dream. I need you to tell me what it, what it was. And they say, what did you say? He says, yeah, tell me what I dreamed. And they say, no, no, that's not, that's not how our like kooky dooky thing works. You tell us what you dreamed and then we come up with some silly explanation of what that means. And he says, no, 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 I'm done with you guys. Tell me what I dreamed and what it meant or I'm gonna kill all of you. And they're like, what's happening? And word that Daniel and his friends are all about to get killed by the king enters Daniel's ears. They were all about to be killed because the king wants to know what he dreamed and what it meant. And none of these astrologers or magicians have any idea how to do that. And you know what Daniel does? Daniel leans into the community of God's people, the other believers who are elect exiles with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, brothers, I need you to pray. Pray for me that God would reveal to me what's going on so that we don't die. And that night, God answers the community's prayer and Daniel knows what the vision is. And you know what the vision is? Daniel goes to the king and says, yeah, I know what you dreamed. I know what it means. But not because there's anything special in me, but because I want you to know there's a God in heaven. Here's your dream. I saw, you saw a statue and its head was gold. And then its body turns to silver. And then it turns into bronze. And as you keep looking down the statue, it turns into iron and mix of clay. It's this great big statue. And the king says, yeah, that's what I dreamed. And then you know what Daniel says next? says, then there was a stone hewn from a mountain and no human hand hewn, hewed the stone from the rock. It was this invisible hand takes this stone. And the king's like, yep, I saw that stone. And then you know what Daniel says next? The stone was thrown at that statue and it all came crashing down. And that stone filled the whole earth and it is a kingdom that will never end. And Daniel looked at the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, all these other statue pieces, those are all the kingdoms of man. Those are all these nations rise, nations fall. Nations rise, nations fall. But one day, there will be a stone that will end all other human kingdoms. And it will fill the earth. And it will be the kingdom 
not of Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. It will be the kingdom of God and it'll last forever. And Isaiah says that that kingdom, that stone, will be the Messiah. He will be a stone and you'll know him because he will appear in Zion, in Jerusalem. And God will build his kingdom with the Messiah as the cornerstone. It's fascinating in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is trying to tell people who he is and they're constantly rejecting him. And you know what Jesus quotes? He says, I am like the, I am like the vineyard owner's son who has come back to the vineyard looking for what is due of him and y'all are rejecting me. And Jesus says, truly it is written, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Friends, who is the cornerstone? Who is the king to end all kings? Who is the Lord of lords? What is the kingdom that will last forever long after all these other nations have come and gone? It's Jesus Christ. And what Peter is telling these believers is you may be rejected by this world. You may never get into the parties you want to get into. You may never get into the influential circles of people. You may never get the social respect that you want. But you know what? Jesus didn't get the respect he deserved. Jesus, even the living stone, he was rejected just as scripture said he would be. And just as you worship a living savior, you now become a living stone like him. The same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead now resides in you. You are alive in Christ. And if Jesus is alive and you will live forever with him, you are also going to share in his rejection in this world. This is what union with Christ means. It means that our identity to our core is found in Jesus. And the cornerstone of our lives is him. I, more than anything, am a beloved child of God. I am a redeemed saint, a forgiven sinner. I am a member of God's household. And if you are a Christian, that's what you are to your identity. When it comes to our identity, we receive our identity from Jesus. We don't have to build our identity based on all of our accomplishments. I mean, gosh, what a, what a back-breaking stone to put on your back, that your identity is your accomplishments. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, what are we doing to kids? Make up who you are, define who yourself is. I mean, what a, what a crushing burden to have to bear your own you know, existence. And because, of course, for many of us, we don't get to have a great accomplishments. Many of us, we are defined by our wounds and the awful things that have happened to us. I mean, friend, how much better, how much more gracious is it to build your life on the love of God to you in Christ Jesus? That he is the solid rock who will never let you down, who's never lied to you, who's never just, you know, buttered you up, you know, to get what he wants out of you. To know your identity is to know Jesus is the living stone. And you are connected with him, right? That's what Peter's trying to get them to see. Jesus is alive, so are you. Jesus was rejected, guess what? You and I are gonna be rejected as well. But you know what's great? In the only, only court of opinion that matters, the only court of opinion that matters, 
Peter says, look at verse 7. He says, you have honor. You have honor. You know, Jesus is chosen and precious, and so are you, Christian. In the only court of opinion that matters, God finds you lovely, and he loves you, and you are his beloved, and you are his redeemed child through Jesus. I mean, friends, you know, we, we are told we are constantly on the wrong side of history, aren't we? But friends, there's only one history, and it's his story. And we are on the right side of history because in the end, Jesus wins. And I don't have to worry what anybody else says because I know Jesus is the cornerstone of my life. Do you know that? Do you know that, that that is your identity? If you do, I'll go quickly these last two. If you do, you'll start to grasp uh, what Peter's talking about. He says, if that's your identity, you'll recognize, you'll feel this holy hunger, right? This second stomach grumbling away to make sacrifices to the Lord, right? That we are supposed to be priests, right? And now you may be thinking, priests, I don't want to be a priest. Priests are so boring. They wear black all the time. I don't want to be a priest. But well, you have to understand, well, what does a priest do? What does a priest do? A priest makes sacrifices, a priest makes sacrifices to a God. That's what a priest does, right? So what is it that we're supposed to make a sacrifice for? Well, uh, friends, I know like we, when we think of Christianity in America, it's so hard to see how new the gospel is because for many of us, we think of Christianity as sort of like a moral list of things to do to make us more moral, like good, decent people, right? And Christianity is a moral thing that does make you a good, decent person, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And to, to kind of grasp the newness, you have to think a little bit about what would it have been like for Christians in this time to try to explain what the gospel is? I mean, just imagine this, you know, kind of discussion, right? So uh, imagine you're one of Peter's audience members, right? You're, you're listening to this letter. You're living in modern-day Turkey. You're maligned and mistreated, and your family is leaving you because you don't, you got this weird religion thing going on. Well, imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, well... Okay, so you've got a new religion. You know, we, we, there's a bunch of gods. That's fine. You can have a new god. That's cool. We live in a pluralistic society. And then they'd say, okay, well, wh where's your temple? You know, I, I worship at the temple of Zeus. You know, my mom worships at the temple of Artemis. Where's, you know, where's your god's temple? Well, a Christian would say, what? Oh, there's no temple. There's no temple. We're the temple. God's spirit dwells within us. We're the temple. Well, you don't have to go to a building. You know, we together are the temple of the living God. We don't have a temple anymore. We're the temple. What? Well, what do your priests do then? What, where do they make the sacrifice? Oh, we don't have any priests anymore. There are no priests. What do you mean there are no priests? Who, where, who do you make sacrifices to? Who makes the sacrifice? Well, actually, we don't have any more priests because Jesus was the ultimate high priest and he gave the ultimate sacrifice, the only perfect sacrifice that completely satisfied God's wrath against our sin. He gave himself for us. How could I ever compete with that? I don't need to make any more, uh, you know, animal sacrifices because his blood was shed for me. So actually, I don't need to make any more sacrifices. What do you mean you don't make any more sacrifices? Well, I guess that's not totally true. Although I don't make any more animal sacrifices and we as his people are his temple, I guess the sacrifice I make to God is, is not to earn his favor. My sacrifice is my whole life. I give him not just, you know, one day a week. I give him every day of the week. I give him not just my obedience. I give him my love. Everything, my whole life is his sacrifice to him. 
is holy and acceptable. My whole life is just joyfully knowing God. And I don't need some human priest between me and that God. Because God became a human and became my priest. And now he brings me into his very presence, into the holy of holies. And I worship him with total freedom. I mean, do you see how, how vastly different in understanding the gospel is? Uh, friends, you know, when I grew up in Virginia, and uh, when, when people would sometimes say, hey, this is Justin, I would be like, okay, that's fine. That's not who I am. But Justin, Dustin, very close. But when people would say, this is Dustin from West Virginia, I would say, whoa, careful. I'm not from West Virginia. Virginia, very different cultures, right? Friends, when people call me their priest, I always go, careful there. You know, you can call me Justin all day long. I don't care. But don't call me your priest. Because what Peter says is that, in a sense, there are no more priests. Because Jesus is a high priest. But in a deeper, more profound sense, all of God's people are priests. Notice what Peter says. Look at verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house and a what? A royal priesthood. Friends, we are all priests and we are all called in Christ Jesus to make all of our life a sacrifice pleasing to him. I mean, so that, that's, that's the nature of the game. That's what we're doing. That's our identity. We want all of our lives, every corner of our life to reflect his glory and grace. And lastly, of course, I'll just finish with this. You know, Peter does finish with a sort of a somber tone and he warns people that, you know, if you eventually sit on the fence long enough with Jesus, eventually you'll just come to the conclusion that he's offensive and you won't like him. You know, I've said that before, but have you ever tried to sit on a fence? I know like in America, we like to keep our options open. You know, we want to be very like open-minded. We don't really want to come down hard on anything. But the problem is, is Jesus never offers people that opportunity. I mean, have you ever sat on a picket fence? I mean, have you seen those things? I mean, imagine sitting on that for 30 minutes, what that would do to you. I mean, now try to spend your whole life on the fence when it comes to the most important question, who's Jesus? I mean, you and I, we're not meant to sit on the fence. We're supposed to make a decision, right? And of course, Peter references that incredible mystery of election that there are some people destined not to believe. How do we respond to that? Well, on one level, I would say is, friends, if you feel the pull right now to build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus, to see that your life is meant to be one of a priest, to know that you're a sojourner, you're never going to quite fit in, that part of your support system is the spiritual house, the community, the church. Uh, friends, if you feel that pull, why would you resist the Holy Spirit? Why would you resist him? My friends, as we close, we're going to have the band come forward and they're going to be uh, singing a special song this morning. Uh, we're not asking you to sing along with it. Just listen. Uh, but it's an incredible reminder. It's a song called, O Come All Ye Unfaithful. And it's a reminder that the offer of the gospel of grace is not that you got to clean yourself up not that you got to become morally perfect. Not that you got to try to outweigh your good deeds with your bad before God will accept you. It's a reminder that Jesus has come to save the sick. That the mark of a Christian is somebody who knows they need the great physician. Who knows they need forgiveness. Who knows they can't be made right with God apart from Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. 
You know, the Bible tells us, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Uh, Friends, I hope you hear this song as a reminder of the gospel of grace.